You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. Good afternoon. Just give us a second. Let the people are having Okay, so first of all, today's class we're doing in uh, memory of Nachman ben David, that is Neshama Shadav and Aliyah that he just recently passed, so that the learning be today in his memory. So they say the story about uh, Louis XIV, King of France, who was uh, one of the longest serving kings, longer than any of predecessors, I think for 72 years, with once having a conversation was a great philosopher, mathematician, known Blaise Pascal. And he was a very well-known mathematician, and he was, you know, talking to him about philosophy and things like that of the nature. And the king asks him and says, let me ask you something. You're a smart guy. Can you prove to me that there's a God? Prove to me that there's a God. Logically, whatever it may be. I guess they have to tell him to come to the My God JLI class to be able to know that. But uh, so he tells him, he says, you know, my dear king, the biggest proof that there's a God is if you look at the Jewish people. The very fact that the Jewish people are around today for the past 2,000 years, that's the biggest proof that there's a God because that's beyond nature. For the Jewish people to still be around, that's the biggest proof there's a, lot, there's a God. So today, we're going to talk about what does it mean, us the Jewish people, as our task here in this world, as agents of God, what is our job here? Why are we so different than everybody else in this universe? What is our job and mission and our task given to us different than everybody else in the world? But in order to understand this, we need to know, first of all, that us as Jewish people are all agents of Almighty God. We are all like the extended arm, if you want to call it, of God. And we are here in this world to fulfill a mission, to accomplish a task. And that task is to make this world an oasis for godliness to make this world a spiritual haven, to create a perfect world out of an imperfect place, to bring some righteousness and humanity into this world. And why God chose us and how are we able to do it is what we'll talk about today. But how are we going to understand this? By looking in a little bit into this week's Torah reading. As you know, in general, in the Torah, every single word is concise. There's nothing extra. There's no word superfluous. Every single word has a reason and a purpose for being there. And the question is, if you look at this week's Torah reading, there is something that is mentioned, an entire episode, repeated again. An entire episode said 66 verses, repeated seemingly for no reason. Where something that the Torah could have said it, it was probably in one verse or in two words, and the Torah repeats it and takes 66 verses to repeat it. And what do the commentaries say? Why? Because God enjoys the verses, the language, the talk of the servants of our forefathers more than anything else. Now the question is, what's so unique about it? What do you mean God enjoys the talk of the servants of our forefathers more than anything else? You know, the Ten Commandments seemingly are the most important part of the Torah. And it's not repeated. It's concise. The Exodus of Egypt is not repeated. 
The song that the Jews sang to the Jewish people is not repeated. But over here we have an entire story and it's repeated 66 verses again and again. Why? What is this teaching us? Why is it that you have something that a servant of our forefathers said is more important than any other story and episode of Moses himself? Moses' words are exact. But over here you have an entire story said all over again. So let's get into the story a little bit. Let's find out what happened here and let's analyze and let's delve a little bit deep into the story and then we'll be able to try to answer our questions. So our Torah reading begins first with the passing of Sarah. Sarah passes away right after the episode of the bombing of Isaac. Some want to say it's connected to it. When she heard about this, the idea that her son was going to be brought as a sacrifice, that in itself caught her such distraught that she passed. Avram then buried Sarah in the cave of the patriarchs. And after that, he realizes that he has one son. He's got to marry off his son. He was 40 years old already. He's got to marry him off. So he calls over his only servant, his faithful servant named Eliezer. And who he is, we're going to get to in a moment. Because Isaac was not allowed to leave the land of Israel. He was considered a sacrifice, something sacred. And therefore, he was not allowed to leave the land of Israel. And But he needed a, a shidduch. He needed a match for his son Avram. So what does he do? He calls over a fellow who is not given a name. In fact, we don't know his name. He is called servant, and in other places he's called the gentleman, who is called over and he says, listen here, I need a shidduch for my son Yitzchak. My son Yitzchak is not allowed to leave the land of Israel. Therefore, I need you to swear to me that you're going to go and get him a girl, which is from my family, not from the people of Canaan that I live with, but you're going to get him somebody that's related to me, that he's going to be able to find a match for my son Yitzchak. Now, who is this fellow? As we mentioned, it doesn't say his name. He tells him he's a servant. He's called him gentleman and he's called a servant. But who is this person that's a servant? So if we look in last week's Torah reading, when God comes to Avram and he tells Avram, I'm going to, in fact, in two weeks ago Torah reading, and tells Abraham, I'm going to give you the world, meaning the land of Israel is yours, your children are going to be the one that's going to be blessed and everything else. Abraham looks at God and says, God, I don't got any kids. What are you blessing me with? Let my servant, Damasek Eliezer, he calls him, the Damascus Eliezer, be my inheritance. Let him be the one to enjoy everything I get. Who is this Damasek Eliezer? Why was he called Damasek Eliezer? Simply put, some want to say that this fellow Damasek Eliezer, he was actually from Damascus. And this fellow Damasek Eliezer, being that he was Damas- from Damascus, he was an individual that served in Abraham's home. Now, who was Damascus? Where was Damascus? was in Syria. Who were the people that lived in Syria? Go a little bit back. If you remember, Noah had three sons. Shem, Ham, and Yafes. Ham was the father of Canaan. Canaan had a son called Ham. Uh, I'm sorry, Ham had a son, Canaan, and he was now in the land of Canaan, which was basically the people of Ham. Who were the people of Ham? They were, going, they were the cursed people who were going to be servants to the people of Shem and Yafes, which makes very well sense why Eliezer was now the servant of Avram. Eliezer was from Canaan, and now he's being the servant to Avram, who was from Shem, exactly to the curse that Noah said. But it gets even more than that. Eliezer, if you want to take it even a little further, Damasek tells us that Avram was, that this fellow Eliezer was from a place 
of people were, so to speak, if you want to call the lowest common denominator of the humanity at the time because they were cursed. He was a servant. Now, even more so, you want to talk about he was a servant, and what does he call, what, is, what did Noah call Canaan's family, Ham's family? Oror, he cursed them. And therefore he was being a servant to him. So over here we see on one hand, domestic Eliezer, when he refers to this fact, Eliezer of Damascus, let's put it mildly, he wasn't talking about a person who was from the greatest caliber of individuals. At least his people around him were not the greatest caliber of individuals. That's one interpretation of what it means, domestic Eliezer. But then there's another terminology, domestic Eliezer. If you remember the story of the four and the five kings, Abraham gathered together with him 318 people to be able to wage war against the four kings, who were the most powerful kings of all times. And it says that he chased them until Damasek. And the commentaries explain what does it mean he chased them until Damasek? That who was the one that waged war together with Abraham? Was a servant Eliezer. And Eliezer was just as powerful as 318 people because he was so clean of sin that he was a person that had no sin in him whatsoever. That means over here the word domestic is not telling me a derogatory term about Eliezer, but on the contrary, it's telling me about a great individual who was Eliezer to the extent that he was a person who was the qualification of 318 righteous people, and he was the one that Avram took with him to wage war against the people of the four kings. Even more so, Eliezer, even though he may have come from a place of Syria, he may have been from an individual who may have been from the lowest, if you want to call it at the time, but still in all this, Eliezer, he was a person, in fact, the word domestic and Rashi gives an interpretation, he was the interpreter, he was the reviewer of all Abraham's talks. That means when people came to hear Abraham's give, preach, and talk about monotheism, about godliness, Eliezer was the interpreter, Eliezer was the one to help them understand what Abraham was talking about. So we see over here on one hand, Eliezer is one interpretation telling him he was from the lowest common denominator. And on the other hand, it tells us that this Eliezer fellow is from the greatest people. Interestingly enough, the Medrash tells us that there are nine people who were clean of sin that went into the holy of, that went into heaven alive. Meaning that they did not have their life, their, their physical body, did not have to go through, through that transition of death. And who was one of them? Eliezer, the servant of Abraham. For example, Elijah the prophet's one of them. Hiram. Um, there was other people. Basia, Serech Basasher, Yeshua Malevi. Great people throughout history. None of those people. And who's one of them? Eliezer, the servant of Abraham. So what do we see from over here? Just for starters, this fellow Eliezer has a dual personality. He has a personality of being, so to speak, from the tribe of Ham from this cursed nation that Noah cursed, but at the same time, he seemingly made his way up the hierarchy to be the servant of Avram, but the qualifications that he was able to be, even the translator and transmitter of Abraham's words. To the extent that someone to say that he went into the heavens alive. So now we know about Eliezer. So who's this Eliezer? Abraham calls Eliezer and he asks him, can you be my messenger? Can you be the Shatran? Can you be the one to go to the land over there where Rifka was. And can you please go and go out of the land of Israel and find this woman that couldn't be for my son Isaac. What does he do? 
and it tells us a story. Eight of the other goes, and actually the way it gets shortened for him, he goes with ten camels, laden with wealth. He has a document in his hand that everything Abraham has is going to belong to his son. He now comes with the best gifts that you can imagine, and he comes to the well, which is right by the home of where Rivka lived. And he tells God, I make a deal with you. Should a woman come out and offer me and my camel's water, then I know that this is the one for... Then I know this is the one that's for my, for my master's son. But if she only offers water to me, but not to my camel, or she doesn't offer me water at all, as good as she looks and as great as she may be, I know she's not for my master. And what happens? Automatically, a little girl comes out, and she's carrying the pitchers of water, and she offers them water, and she offers water for his camels, and she, then he asks her, who are you? And he finds out it's a relative, and then the story goes on. And the story tells us that after the whole episode that Eliezer makes this condition, and he meets Rivka, and then he comes to Rivka's home, and he meets Rivka's home, and he meets Besuel, and he meets Love, and he meets the whole family, and he says, by the way, this is the story that happened, and the Torah repeats the entire episode, the condition that he made, and everything that he met, the Torah could have said, and Eliezer said everything that happened, and so on. But the Torah reviews 66 verses, while the Ten Commandments are 16 verses. The Exodus of Egypt are maybe 33 verses. Over here it tells us about how Eliezer stood by the water, made a condition, and that he was finding a match for his master son, 66 verses, and the Torah finds a need to repeat it. And that's where the Torah, the commentaries come along and say, because God enjoys the talk of our forefathers' servants more than anything else. And our question is again, why? Who is this guy? <laughs> that all of a sudden the Torah is so excited to repeat everything he says. Not once, but twice. Creation of the universe, you would think, is also something fascinating. It's shut it off. But the creation of the universe only is 29 verses, and it's not repeated anywhere. It says it once, and that's it. And over here, all of a sudden, this is said again. The only other place that we find something similar to this is by the building of the tabernacle. By the building of the tabernacle, once God says it to Moses, and then afterwards Moses says it to the Jewish people, and it's repeated again in Torah reading. And over there, the Torah says clearly because we want to show how much the Jewish people were enthusiastic in building the tabernacle, but also any time the Torah repeats something, every time it repeats it, there's something new that we learn from it. And over there also by the building of the tabernacle, there are some things new. And also to show how God loved it. But over here, there's nothing new. Exact same story, again and again. Why is it repeated? So again, why is the story repeated? Why is this even more important than even when Moses taught the Jewish people that it has to say all this? Another unique thing that we're going to find is when the Torah tells us the story, sometimes the Torah calls this fellow Eliezer servant, and sometimes he calls him gentleman. Why the change of reference to who this individual is? Like when Abraham tells him, he calls a servant, promise me, servant, promise me, servant, the servant took, the servant took. All of a sudden when it comes that he's standing by the water and he's waiting to see who the girl is that is going to be the one that he's going to choose as a wife for Yitzchak. Then the Torah says, and the man, the gentleman is waiting to see, and the gentleman sees and doesn't call him a servant anymore. So what's going on over here? Why does he change the terminology? Why is the servant getting that repetitive um, note? And the Rebbe talks about this at length many different times, many different occasions. And many times that the Rebbe spoke about this was in the actual week that it was the conference of the Shulchan conference when all the rabbis would come all around the world talking about what does it mean to be a messenger? What does it mean to be on an errand? And what is our task in this world? 
Eliezer, if we want to call it, was the first shiach, was the first person ever in the Torah to be used as a messenger, to send as an errand. Never before in the Torah do we find somebody to be sent to do something on behalf of somebody else. Meaning, every single time somebody did something, it was the individual himself went and did it. Where do we find the concept that I can make you my agent to go do something for me? The very concept that you automatically become my agent and you become just like me, that in itself is a unique quality, something fascinating idea that the Torah comes up with. The first individual to do such a task was Eliezer. In Jewish law, this has a very big qualification. For example, if I task somebody to deliver something for me, that person now takes on who I am, my existence. There's a big difference in Jewish law as well. Do I say that that person, and this is already an an, Talmudic analytics, if you want to call it, to Talmudic pontification, but there is a practical application to it, that when this uh, uh, representative goes on my behalf, does he take on my existence, or is he just merely extending my hand? And the difference would be, is if, God forbid, the, me- the one who sends the messenger passes away, is does automatically now the errand incomplete, or because that person took on that guy's existence, now the errand can still be completed. And the difference would be, let's say if it was a divorce, let's say if I send somebody to, men to send a divorce, and the person dies, so is the woman a widow, or she would be a divorcee? <laughs> that would be the difference. And the difference would be if she would be able to marry a Cohen. So it gets a lot of complicated and has a lot of other interesting intricacies in this pontification of what a messenger means. But the first person to ever be a messenger, to take on the image of a messenger, to be somebody going on an errand, was a leader. Now you may ask, what's the big deal? So I'm sending you on an errand to do something. But here's the kicker. The difference is, when I send you on a message, when I'm sending you on an errand, what do you have to have in mind? To fulfill the job that I have given you, even against your own interests. When you hire somebody, and this is, we have something called today, your fiduciary responsibility, in legal terminology. When you hire an agent, whether it's a financial planner or a lawyer, whatever it is, they have a fiduciary responsibility to do what you want, even if it's against their own interest. Where's the first time that somebody has to do such a thing? Is Eliezer. He was hired by Avram to go find a shidduch, to find a match for his daughter, uh, for his son, Yitzchak, against his own interest. What does it mean against his own interest? Because at the end of the day, and here's the interesting thing, that Eliezer had his own daughter. And Eliezer had a daughter that wanted, that he wanted his daughter should marry Yitzchak. And he suggested it to Avram. Can my daughter marry your son? And what did Avram tell him? Sorry. You come from the people of Ham. You come from the people of Ham that are cursed. My son comes from the people of Shem that are blessed. And a blessed cannot marry a cursed. So over here when Eliezer was taking, was doing a task, he was doing a task which was against his own interest. Now imagine that. He is standing over here by the water, looking for a shidduch, looking for a match for his master's son, against his own interest, because he wants this seemingly job, that he, errand that he would do, to fail. Because if it fails, maybe he has a better chance that his daughter would not get the shidduch. But what does he do over here on the contrary? Eliezer knew 
that even though that if this flops, he might be able to get the job, his daughter might be able to get the job. But instead, he does the task to its completion. Not only does he do the task into the completion, but according to the Abarbanel, which is the commentator, a Spanish commentator on the Torah, explains that there were 10 things that Eliezer changed in order to sell the product better. That means he had to change what Avram told him in order to sell the product better to the people of Rivka. For example, he said that my master does not allow me to take my, his son here because of a special quality of who he is. He didn't explain, he didn't elaborate, but he sold the product that it should get sold, not thinking in the back of his mind, one second, maybe I can get away with it. Let me hope that this plan fails. I did my job. I came and tried to sell it. They didn't want. He could have easily said that. In fact, the word ulai, the terminology of yours, ulai, maybe. There's two terminologies in the Torah for the word maybe. There's a word pen, which was also means maybe, and ulai, which means maybe. We find it in the Shema, pen maybe you may turn your hearts away from God. Ulai also means maybe, but the difference between the two of them in Hebrew is pen is talks about a failure. Ulai talks about success, success to it. Maybe I'll be successful, or hopefully I'll be successful. Ulai is Ulai, we look for hope, while pen looks for failure, so to speak, or looks for the side of the negative. And what's the terminology that Eliezer uses here? I'm hopeful that this will succeed. Eliezer over here, if you try to psychoanalyze Eliezer at this moment, over here, he seemingly should want this mission to fail. But instead of looking for the mission to fail, he is a dual messenger and he follows through the command to its utmost and he says, I want it to succeed, even against his own interests. Why is this? Because Eliezer was an absolute servant to his master. He was a person that was dedicated to the cause. He was a person that recognized that he has to do his job, his message, his, his errand in this world, he has to accomplish it. Eliezer is that paradigm of who we are in this world. Eliezer, we now understand why the Torah loves this speech so much. Why the Torah duplicates and why the Torah repeats these 66 verses. Because Eliezer is not just a story of the past. He's not just a story of finding Isaac a match. But Eliezer is every single one of us in this world. Every single one of us, God gives us a job and a task to accomplish in this world. Every single moment, God is calling us to, to do something. God is calling us to accomplish, to make this world a holy place. And it's a very holy task and a very delicate task. But a task at the same time that comes with a conflict of interest. Because at the same time it may seem that you may be enjoying this physical materialistic world. Why should I indulge and why should I divert my time to Torah study, to doing things which may not be to enjoy my physical materialistic pleasure? And therefore we have to be able to stay on task. We have to stay on task and stay on course of what we are given our job in this world, even at times where it seems like counterproductive to our own physicals and materialistic desires. The message and the errand that God gave Eliezer to create that match, to make a match between Yitzchak, Isaac, and Rebekah, is also the job that God gives every single one of us, to make the match between material and physical, to fuse physical and spiritual. And just like Eliezer was completely subjugated and self-nullified to his errand, to his messenger, to, his mess, to the one that sent him on the message, to be able to do it, so too we have to be completely devoted to our cause of what we're here for in this world. 
In fact, the Rebbe takes it a step further and says there are three types of people who do jobs for people in this world. You have a servant, you have a worker, and you have a shaliach, a messenger. What's the difference between the three? You have a servant, his whole job is subservience to his master. He does the job perfectly, but what does he do with this? He is compelled to do it because he's subservient to his master. He doesn't have an entity for himself. He doesn't understand anything other than himself. He only knows himself, so therefore he's completely subjugated to whatever the master says. His subservience is only to the master. Then you have a worker. A worker does the job nine to five perfectly. But the moment five o'clock finishes, he's out. Why is the worker there? Because he gets a paycheck at the end. He could care less what the job is as long as he gets his job. As long as he gets his paycheck at the end of the day. Is he there because he loves the job? Sometimes yes, sometimes not. But his main task of why the worker is there is to get a paycheck. The highest level is a shliach. A shliach means he's our messenger. All of a sudden, this shliach, what does he do? He is not doing it because he's subservient to the person that sent him. Whether he likes him, he doesn't like him, he applied, he accepted to do the job. He is not doing it because of the 9 to 5, because of the payment that he's going to get from it, because who said he's getting paid? Why is he doing it? Because he has a task to accomplish, and therefore he goes and does it. He is like the extended arm, and therefore the words in Hebrew, as are brought into the Talmud, Shluchai shall Adam kemaisai, the messenger of a person, is as if he takes on the individual himself. He now is that person. If I send you on an errand, you now become me. The, the messenger who is doing the errand becomes the individual who sent him on the errand. Eliezer became Avram. He was able to acquire, he was able to take Rivka, he was able to give Avram and Rivka all the presents from Avram because he took on, he wasn't just an extended arm, but he took on the whole responsibility of who Avram was. He became just like Avram himself. He is not doing it for the reward, but he becomes that person himself. Therefore, if you want to look at the difference, if you see how Eliezer's terminology changes, at first he's called an Evet, then he's called an Ish. He's first called a servant, and then he changes the terminology, he's called a gentleman. When he is tasked with a job in the beginning, and Avram sends him, he's a servant. Why is he doing it? Because he's subservient to Avram. He has no choice, he's going to do it. But when he's standing in front of Rebecca's family and he's selling the merchandise, if you want to call it, he's selling Isaac so the family should want and accept Isaac as a son-in-law, then all of a sudden he becomes a gentleman because now he has his own personality. Because technically he could have diverted from the mission. He could have had his own interests in mind. But he, instead he took on the place of Avram. He became the gentleman. He became the master because now he is Avram. And he is selling the product. And that's why the terminology changes. So first he's the servant. When he's accepting the mission, he's the servant because he's doing it out of subservience. But when he's selling the product and he's doing the mission, then he becomes one with the Ayagin. He becomes one entity with the messenger, with the one who sent him on the message, on the errand. And therefore he becomes Ish, he becomes a gentleman. It's a fascinating story told by Remendel Futterfas. Remendel Futterfass was a fellow, I'm sure you heard him mention in stories many times before. Remendel Futterfass, he was a fellow in the communist Russia. He was first a teacher of many. And then he was very involved in forging passports and getting many Russian Jews across the border, the Polish border, right after the war. Eventually he was caught as well. 
and uh, he was sentenced to, sentenced to Siberia for 10 years. But before his sentencing, he was vague, made him miserable, as you can imagine. Until finally, after two months of misery, he was, once he got a sentence in a way that was a little bit calm, because he knew what's going to happen, they were going to kill him, they didn't kill him, and whatever it was. And he's, in his whole distress, he wanted to send a letter to the previous Rebbe. Now, the previous Rebbe was in America, but he had to want to send a letter to the previous Rebbe to communicate with them his feelings on what was going on. So he decided, within the prison cells, he's going to connect to the previous Rebbe, because why is he here in Russia even helping Jews? was because the previous Rebbe, before he left Russia, the previous Rebbe made 10 people swear that they will stay here to keep Judaism alive, and Remendel was one of those. And that's why he was still in Russia. So he says, I'm going to want to send a letter, and I'm going to send it through telepathy. Through my mind, I'm going to connect to the Rebbe. He put on his gartel as if he would go in for a private audience to the previous Rebbe, went into a corner, and got lost in thought for a while, and then he felt comfort that everything's going to work out. When he came out of Russia 20 years later, his family told him, you know how we knew you were okay? Because 20 years ago, and this in this day, we got a letter back from the Rebbe saying, I received your letter and I wish you blessed. At that exact same time, when he was in Russia, and he was in prison, and he had that thought, connecting himself with his message, with the, with the one who sent him, with his, the messenger connecting with the one who sent him on the, on the errand, that automatically connected him and came one. <laughs> the story goes to heaven, has an interesting uh, sequel to it, which was there was a rabbi, his name is Rabbi Derrin, who's now a shliach in Stanford, Connecticut, but he moved to Amherst, Massachusetts in 1967, 19, uh, later, I'm sorry, 1978, 1979. He um, was on campus, and he wanted to make this big concert to be able to welcome all the students to campus and the community and everything else. And um, so he rented this big massive hall that can hold a thousand people. And he was hoping to have a big attraction. Three days before the concert, two days before the concert, I think it was the Friday, the concert was going to be Sunday. And he was a Friday afternoon. He calls up the ticket office to see how many tickets were sold. They told him about 70, 80 tickets. He was really upset and down. He said, I rented this big hall. I put out such expenditures. It's first year. It's everything's going to be there. It's all a waste of money. Didn't know what to do. He was very depressed, very upset. Middle of Shabbos, he reminded himself of this story of Remendel Futafas. So he says, you know what? I'm also going to send a letter. <laughs> and he goes into his backyard and he gets lost in thought for a little bit, asking the rabbi, no, yeah. Meanwhile, Sunday night comes. He doesn't know what's going to happen. And as he's heading to the concert hall, he sees the lines of people waiting outside. Meanwhile, it was a big success. Thousands of people came. It was beautiful. That night, his grandmother went into Yechidus to the Rebbe. And his grandmother, Yechidus, a private audience with the Rebbe because their daughter was getting married. And after the whole um, pleasantries before it, afterwards, she tells the Rebbe that she just came from the concert by her grandson Israel, and it was a beautiful concert. And the Rebbe asked, was people there? Was the press there? And so on. And then the Rebbe turns to her and says, so why was he so depressed? <laughs> what we see from here, and even we see this in modern <laughs> psychology, is that you can connect to a person through your mind. When you think about a person enough, they will also think back about you. How much more so when a person sends you on an errand to do something. You are connected with the one that sent you. And this is exactly what the Torah is telling us. Eliezer was connected with Avraham 
at the time that he had to sell the shidduch. And therefore, Eliezer was successful. Because Eliezer, for one moment, did not think, I'm independent. Eliezer, as long as he was going, he knew that he was an agent of Abraham. And for that reason, you all look throughout the Torah reading. It doesn't mention his name. Why doesn't it mention his name? Because who's Eliezer? What does it make a difference who he is? He's an agent of Avram. I'm a servant of Avram. I'm an agent of Avram. I don't have an existence for myself. I am who Avram is. And therefore, there's no need for his name to be mentioned. And this is exactly why the Torah repeats these 66 verses. Because the Torah is reminding us that every single one of us are agents of Almighty God. We are not here for self-existence. We are only merely agents of Hashem. We are only here to fulfill a task in this world. In fact, the Talmud is an interesting debate. For three and a half years, the Talmud tells us there was a debate. Two and a half years, I'm sorry. There was a debate between the, stu- the students of Shammai and the students of Philo. And the debate was as follows. What is better? Was it better that a person should not be created, but now that he's created, it's good? Or was it better that he should be created, than he shouldn't have been created? That means, what would have been better? Rather, we shouldn't have been, or rather, that we're here? Okay, so now we have to make the best of it. And in the end, the Talmud says, rather, we shouldn't have been created than being created. And over here, many commentators ask a question, I don't understand. Who created the human being? God. So the Talmud is arguing and saying that when God said it was good that he created man, they say better that he shouldn't have been created. And Hasidism comes, explains, the first Chabad Rebbe explains and says as follows. Not that he shouldn't have been created. In fact, what it means is that when a person has to recognize why he was created, when a person doesn't realize his job and his task in the morning, when he wakes up in the morning and all he thinks about is when I can hit the snooze button, and he doesn't want to get up to get his job, do his job done in the world. He doesn't realize that he's an agent of the Creator. Then maybe it's better that he shouldn't have been a Creator. But if a person wakes up in the morning recognizing that every single morning he has a task, that God has given him in this world, that we are agents of the Almighty. And I am not a creation for myself. I am merely an agent of God. Then yes, then it's toif, then it's what God intended on the day of creation. The same idea, just like Eliezer, who was a shliach of Almighty God, who was a shliach of Avram, he was an agent of Avram. And because he was an agent of Avram, he was given the greatest blessings, meaning he had his way was shortened for him. He was able to see the miraculous events happen in his life. And all those miracles and challenges that he thought he would encounter just opened up and split the world open. So too, when we recognize that we are agents of Almighty God, when we recognize that every task that we have in the world, as challenging as it may be, but it's because God put us here in this world to bring light, then automatically we'll see the denial split for us. We'll see automatically the road get easy for us. Because as long as you remember, you're an agent of God. Remember that you're only here because Abraham, you're a servant of Avram. You're a servant of God. You're merely an agent of God. Then you'll see it go easy. The moment you have your self-interest, then that's where the problems come. We have to put our self-interest aside. We have to make sure to dedicate ourselves completely and wholesomely to the godly mission that's divinely ordained for every single one of us. Then we'll be able to see the angel in front of us, leading the way, clearing the way, and paving the way to be able to bring about Moshiach now. Mm-hmm.